Section 34 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Gillespie, Ashland, Kentucky. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Battle of Marathon, B.C. 490, Part 1, by Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy. Marathon, a name to conjure up such visions of glory as few battlefields have ever shown. Heroism and determination on the part of the Athenians, supported by the small but ever-noble band of Plataeans who came to their aid. Who can read the repulse of the Persians on this ever-memorable plain without experiencing a thrill of admiration and delight at the achievement? The whole world, since that battle, has looked upon it as a victory of the underdog. Many of the great engagements of modern times have been likened unto it. For long, it has been the synonym of brave despair the conquering of an enemy many times superior in numbers to its opponents. This attempt of the Persians on the Greeks was not the first against them. That took place B.C. 493 under Mardonius. This commander had reduced Ionia, dethroned the despots, and established democracy throughout the land. After this, he turned his attention to Eritrea, and Athens, taking his army across the straits in vessels. But the ships of war and transports were wrecked by a mighty headwind as they rounded Mount Athos. Many were driven ashore, about 300 of them were totally lost, and some 20,000 men perished in the catastrophe. All the trouble between the Persians and Greeks arose over the capture of Sardis by the Ionians, B.C. 500. The city was burned, and then the Ionians retreated. It was to avenge this that Persia determined on a punitive expedition against the Greeks. The Ionians and Malaysian men were mostly slain by the Persians, the women and children led into captivity, and the temples in the cities burned and razed to the ground. In the Battle of Marathon, which succeeded these events, we have a vivid picture presented to us in Creasy's glowing words. 2,340 years ago, a council of Athenian officers was summoned on the slope of one of the mountains that look over the plain of Marathon on the eastern coast of Attica. The immediate subject of their meeting was to consider whether they should give battle to an enemy that lay encamped on the shore beneath them. But on the result of their deliberations depended not merely the fate of two armies, but the whole future progress of human civilization. Now, there were 11 members of that council of war. Ten were the generals who were then annually elected at Athens, one for each of the local tribes, into which the Athenians were divided. 
Each general led the men of his own tribe, and each was invested with equal military authority. But one of the archons was also associated with them in the general command of the army. This magistrate was termed the polymarch, or war ruler. He had the privilege of leading the right wing of the army in battle, and his vote in a council of war was equal to that of any of the generals. A noble Athenian named Callimachus was the war ruler of this year, and as such stood listening to the earnest discussion of the ten generals. They had indeed deep matter for anxiety, though little aware how momentous to mankind were the votes they were about to give, or how the generations to come would read with interest the record of their discussions. They saw before them the invading forces of a mighty empire, which had in the last fifty years shattered and enslaved nearly all the kingdoms and principal cities of the then known world. They knew that all the resources of their own country were comprised in the little army entrusted to their guidance. They saw before them a chosen host of the great king sent to wreak his special wrath on that country and on the other insolent little Greek community which had dared to aid his rebels and burn the capital of one of his provinces. That victorious host had already fulfilled half its mission of vengeance. Eritrea, the confederate of Athens in the bold march against Sardis nine years before, had fallen in the last few days, and the Athenian generals could discern from the heights the island of Agilia, in which the Persians had deposited their Eritrean prisoners, whom they had reserved to be led away captives into Upper Asia there to hear their doom from the lips of King Darius himself. Moreover, the men of Athens knew that in the camp before them was their own banished tyrant, who was seeking to be reinstated by foreign scimitars in a despotic sway over any remnant of his countrymen that might survive the sack of their town and might be left behind as too worthless for leading away into Median bondage. The numerical disparity between the force which the Athenian commanders had under them and that which they were called on to encounter was hopelessly apparent to some of the council. The historians who wrote nearest to the time of the battle do not pretend to give any detailed statements of the numbers engaged, but there are sufficient data for our making a general estimate. Every free Greek was trained to military duty. And from the incessant border wars between the different states, few Greeks reached the age of manhood without having seen some service. But the muster roll of free Athenian citizens of an age fit for military duty never exceeded 30,000, and that this epoch probably did not amount to two-thirds of that number. Moreover, the poorer portion of these were unprovided with the equipments and untrained to the operations of the regular infantry. Some detachments of the best armed troops would be required to garrison the city itself 
and man the various fortified posts in the territory, so that it is impossible to reckon the fully equipped force that marched from Athens to Marathon when the news of the Persian landing arrived at higher than 10,000 men. With one exception, the other Greeks held back from aiding them. Sparta had promised assistance, but the Persians had landed on the sixth day of the moon, and a religious scruple delayed the march of Spartan troops till the moon should have reached its full. From one quarter only, and that from a most unexpected one, did Athens receive aid at the moment of her great peril. Some years before this time, the little state of Plataea in Boeotia, being hard-pressed by her powerful neighbor Thebes, had asked the protection of Athens, and had owed to an Athenian army the rescue of her independence. Now when it was noised over Greece that the Mede had come from the uttermost parts of the earth to destroy Athens, the brave Plataeans, unsolicited, marched with their whole force to assist the defense and to share the fortunes of their benefactors. The general levy of the Plataeans amounted only to a thousand men, and this little column, marching from their city along the southern ridge of Mount Cithaeron and thence across the Attic territory, joined the Athenian forces above Marathon almost immediately before the battle. The reinforcement was numerically small, but the gallant spirit of the men who composed it must have made it of tenfold value to the Athenians, and its presence must have gone far to dispel the cheerless feeling of being deserted and friendless, which the delay of the Spartan succors was calculated to create among the Athenian ranks. This generous daring of their weak but true-hearted ally was never forgotten at Athens. The Plataeans were made the civil fellow-countrymen of the Athenians, except the right of exercising certain political functions. And from that time forth, in the solemn sacrifices at Athens, the public prayers were offered up for a joint blessing from heaven upon the Athenians and the Plataeans also. After the junction of the column from Plataea, the Athenian commanders must have had under them about 11,000 fully armed and disciplined infantry, and probably a large number of irregular light-armed troops, as, besides the poorer citizens who went to the field armed with javelins, cutlasses, and targets, each regular heavy-armed soldier was attended in the camp by one or more slaves who were armed like the inferior freemen. Cavalry or archers, the Athenians, on this occasion, had none. And the use in the field of military engines was not at that period introduced into ancient warfare. Contrasted with their own scanty forces, the Greek commanders saw stretched before them along the shores of the winding bay the tents and shipping of the varied nations who marched to do the bidding of the king of the eastern world. The difficulty of finding transports and of securing provisions would form the only limit to the numbers of a Persian army. Nor is there any reason to suppose the estimate of Justin exaggerated 
who rates at a hundred thousand the force which on this occasion had sailed under the satraps datis and artifernes from the cilician shores against the devoted coasts of euboea and attica and after largely deducting from this total so as to allow for mere mariners and camp followers there must still have remained fearful odds against the national levies of the athenians nor could greek generals then feel that confidence in the superior quality of their troops which ever since the battle of marathon has animated europeans in conflicts with asiatics as for instance in the after struggles between greece and persia or when the roman legions encountered the myriads of mithridates and tigranes or as is the case in the indian campaigns of our own regiments on the contrary up to the day of marathon the medes and persians were reputed invincible they had more than once met greek troops in asia minor in cyprus in egypt and had invariably beaten them nothing can be stronger than the expressions used by the early greek writers respecting the terror which the name of the medes inspired and the prostration of men's spirits before the apparently resistless career of the persian arms it is therefore little to be wondered at that the five of the ten athenian generals shrank from the prospect of fighting a pitched battle against an enemy so superior in numbers and so formidable in military renown their own position on the heights was strong and offered great advantages to a small defending force against the sailing masses they deemed it mere foolhardiness to descend into the plain to be trampled down by the asiatic horse overwhelmed with the archery or cut to pieces by the invincible veterans of cambyses and cyrus moreover sparta the great war state of greece had been applied to and had promised succor to athens though the religious observance which the dorians paid to certain times and seasons had for the present delayed their march was it not wise at any rate to wait till the spartans came up and to have the help of the best troops in greece before they exposed themselves to the shock of the dreaded medes specious as these reasons might appear the other five generals were for speedier and bolder operations and fortunately for athens and for the world one of them was a man not only of the highest military genius but also of that energetic character which impresses its own type and ideas upon spirits feebler in conception miltiades was the head of one of the noblest houses at athens he ranked the acidae among his ancestry and the blood of achilles flowed in the veins of the hero of marathon one of his immediate ancestors had acquired the dominion of the thracian chersonees and thus the family became at the same time athenian citizens and thracian princes this occurred at the time when pisistratus was tyrant of athens two of the relatives of miltiades an uncle of the same name 
and a brother named Stesagoras, had ruled the Chersonese before Miltiades became its prince. He had been brought up at Athens in the house of his father Simon, who was renowned throughout Greece for his victories in the Olympic chariot races, and who must have been possessed of great wealth. The sons of Pisistratus, who succeeded their father in the tyranny at Athens, caused Simon to be assassinated. But they treated the young Miltiades with favor and kindness, and when his brother Stesagoras died in the Chersonese, they sent him out there as lord of the principality. This was about 28 years before the Battle of Marathon, and it is with his arrival in the Chersonese that our first knowledge of the career and character of Miltiades commences. We find in the first act recorded of him the proof of the same resolute and unscrupulous spirit that marked his mature age. His brother's authority in the principality had been shaken by war and revolt. Miltiades determined to rule more securely. On his arrival, he kept close within his house, as if he was mourning for his brother. The principal men of the Chersonese, hearing of this, assembled from all the towns and districts, and went together to the house of Miltiades, on a visit of condolence. As soon as he had thus got them in his power, he made them all prisoners. He then asserted and maintained his own absolute authority in the peninsula taking into his pay a body of 500 regular troops and strengthening his interest by marrying the daughter of the king of the neighboring Thracians. When the Persian power was extended to the Hellespont and its neighborhood, Miltiades, as prince of the Chersonese, submitted to King Darius, and he was one of the numerous tributary rulers who led their contingents of men to serve in the Persian army in the expedition against Scythia. Miltiades and the vassal Greeks of Asia Minor were left by the Persian king in charge of the bridge across the Danube when the invading army crossed that river and plunged into the wilds of the country that now is Russia, in vain pursuit of the ancestors of the modern Cossacks. On learning of the reverses that Darius met, within the Scythian wilderness, Miltiades proposed to his companions that they should break the bridge down and leave the Persian king and his army to perish by famine and the Scythian arrows. The rulers of the Asiatic Greek cities whom Miltiades addressed shrank from this bold but ruthless stroke against the Persian power, and Darius returned in safety. But it was known what advice Miltiades had given, and the vengeance of Darius was thenceforth specially directed against the man who had counseled such a deadly blow against his empire and his person. The occupation of the Persian arms in other quarters left Miltiades for some years after this in possession of the Chersonese, but it was precarious and interrupted. He, however, availed himself of the opportunity which his position gave him of conciliating the goodwill of his fellow countrymen at Athens by conquering 
and placing under the Athenian authority the islands of Lemnos and Imbros, to which Athens had ancient claims, but which she had never previously been able to bring into complete subjection. At length, in B.C. 494, the complete suppression of the Ionian revolt by the Persians left their armies and fleets at liberty to act against the enemies of the great king to the west of the Hellespont. A strong squadron of Phoenician galleys was sent against the Chersonese. Miltiades knew that resistance was hopeless, and while the Phoenicians were at Tenedos, he loaded five galleys with all the treasure that he could collect and sailed away for Athens. The Phoenicians fell in with him and chased him hard along the north of the Aegean. One of his galleys, on board of which was his eldest son, Metiochus, was actually captured. But Miltiades, with the other four, succeeded in reaching the friendly coast of Imbros in safety. Thence he afterward proceeded to Athens and resumed his station as a free citizen of the Athenian commonwealth. The Athenians at this time had recently expelled Hippias, the son of Pisistratus, the last of their tyrants. They were in the full glow of their newly recovered liberty and equality, and the constitutional changes of Clisthenes had inflamed the republican zeal to the utmost. Miltiades had enemies in Athens, and these, availing themselves of the state of popular feeling, brought him to trial for his life for having been tyrant of the Chersonese. The charge did not necessarily import any acts of cruelty or wrong to individuals. It was founded on no specific law, but it was based on the horror with which the Greeks of that age regarded every man who made himself arbitrary master of his fellow men and exercised irresponsible dominion over them. The fact of Miltiades having so ruled in the Chersonese was undeniable. But the question which the Athenians assembled in judgment must have tried was whether Miltiades, although tyrant of the Chersonese, deserved punishment as an Athenian citizen. The eminent service that he had done the state in conquering Lemnos and Imbros for it pleaded strongly in his favor. The people refused to convict him. He stood high in public opinion. And when the coming invasion of the Persians was known, the people wisely elected him one of their generals for the year. Two other men of high eminence in history, though their renown was achieved at a later period than that of Miltiades, were also among the ten Athenian generals at Marathon. One was Themistocles, the future founder of the Athenian navy and the destined victor of Salamis. The other was Aristides, who afterward led the Athenian troops at Plataea, and whose integrity and just popularity acquired for his country, when the Persians had finally been repulsed, the advantageous preeminence of being acknowledged by half of the Greeks as their imperial leader and protector. It is not recorded what part either Themistocles or Aristides took in the debate of the council of war at Marathon. But from the character of Themistocles, his boldness, and his intuitive genius for extemporizing 
the best measures in every emergency, a quality which the greatest of historians ascribe to him beyond all his contemporaries, we may well believe that the vote of Themistocles was for prompt and decisive action. On the vote of Aristides, it may be more difficult to speculate. His predilection for the Spartans may have made him wish to wait till they came up. But though circumspect, he was neither timid as a soldier nor as a politician. And the bold advice of Miltiades may probably have found in Aristides a willing, most assuredly it found in him a candid hearer. Miltiades felt no hesitation as to the course which the Athenian army ought to pursue, and earnestly did he press his opinion on his brother generals. Practically acquainted with the organization of the Persian armies, Miltiades felt convinced of the superiority of the Greek troops, if properly handled. He saw with the military eye of a great general the advantage which the position of the forces gave him for a sudden attack, and as a profound politician, he felt the perils of remaining inactive and of giving treachery time to ruin the Athenian cause. One officer of the council of war had not yet voted. This was Callimachus, the war ruler. The votes of the general were five and five, so that the voice of Callimachus would be decisive. On that vote, in all human probability, the destiny of all the nations of the world depended. Miltiades turned to him, and in simple, soldiery eloquence, the substance of which we may read faithfully reported in Herodotus, who had conversed with the veterans of Marathon, the great Athenian thus adjured his countrymen to vote for giving battle. It now rests with you, Callimachus, either to enslave Athens, or by assuring her freedom, to win yourself an immortality of fame, such as not even Harmodius and Aristogiton have acquired. For never, since the Athenians were a people, were they in such danger as they are in this moment. If they bow the knee to these maidies, they are to be given up to Hippias, and you know what they will then have to suffer. But if Athens comes victorious out of this contest, she has it in her to become the first city of Greece. Your vote is to decide whether we are to join battle or not. If we do not bring on a battle presently, some factious intrigue will disunite the Athenians, and the city will be betrayed to the Medes. But if we fight before there is anything rotten in the state of Athens, I believe that, provided the gods will give fair play and no favor, we are able to get the best of it in an engagement. The vote of the brave war ruler was gained. The council determined to give battle. And such was the ascendancy and acknowledged military eminence of Miltiades that his brother generals, one and all, gave up their days of command to him and cheerfully acted under his orders. Fearful, however, of creating any jealousy and of so failing to obtain the vigorous cooperation of all parts of his small army, Miltiades waited till the day when the chief command would have come round to him in regular rotation 
before he led the troops against the enemy. The inaction of the Asiatic commanders during this interval appears strange at first sight. But Hippias was with them, and they and he were aware of their chance of a bloodless conquest through the machinations of his partisans among the Athenians. The nature of the ground also explains in many points the tactics of the opposite generals before the battle, as well as the operations of the troops during the engagement. End of section 34, the Battle of Marathon, part 1.